if you have your Bibles and you want to turn over to John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. That's where we're going to be. John chapter 18, verse 28. John 18, verse 28. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray right now, God, that you you would move through the sermon, Lord. I feel like you've already been here. I know that we don't have all the trappings that we could have, but Lord, I feel like your presence has already been here. We've already gathered together as a church and prayed for the sick. We've already got the opportunity to worship you. Lord, we've already seen tears and dancing, shouting. But Lord, now I'm asking that you continue our worship through the preaching of the word. Because this is no less worship than anything else that we've done up to this point. In fact, Lord, this is, this is the culmination of how I worship you. Lord, so let this be a form of exaltation to you. And Lord, more than that, let it be a motivating factor to motivate everyone in here to worship you. Let's worship through the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. John chapter 18, verse 28. We have been in this series for a while, and you guys are probably getting tired of the little graphic image. And it's like, well, school's about to break on Christmas break, and you started this before sc- when school started. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, we'll make a new graphic design and keep the same series title. I don't know. But, <laughs> but the point is, is that, you know, we started this journey about not knowing anything but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I won't go back through every single message, but we've had sections through it, right? We had like the introductory section about, you know, all the things that happened before creation, creation, before Christ's coming, and then up to Christ's coming. And the whole point of that particular section was to show you the sovereignty of God. That's the whole point. To show you the sovereignty of God in salvation, to show you God's incomprehensible, unfathomable love. And then we moved into the first stage of the humiliation of Christ. Which when I say humiliation, I just mean his intentional setting aside of his glory and being born of a virgin. And we got into his birth, his early childhood, his wilderness temptations, some of the baptism stuff. We got into his calling the disciples, into his teaching, his miracles, and then into the most prominent teaching, the Lord's Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and all of that section was about our responsibility, right? The three main motivations of temptation, you know, um, ambition, appetite, appearance, and then, you know, excuses that we make, satisfaction, security, status quo, and it's all wrapped up in what is, where's your heart at? Do you guys see that? Like, it hasn't just been arbitrary, I've just been preaching what God says, and I see a pattern go through it. It was God's sovereignty, human's responsibility, and then last week we started, or 
I'm sorry, not last week. Two messages ago, we started the next section, which is the increasing humiliation of Jesus, beginning with when he turns himself over into the hands of sinners and enters into the passion. And you have Getsemane, and we preached about Getsemane, and we said some people don't make it into the garden. They're out trading Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then you have people that sit in the fringes of the garden, and they're resting, and they're abiding in the finished work. But then you have Jesus call people further in and says, Terry, wait, and until you be endued with power on high, and then you go even further in, and you have people that are actually doing something with it, <laughs> which is unfortunately the minority. And then in the arrest last week, we talked a little bit about what happens to the way people bear witness to Christ. You guys remember that about how do you how we present. Jesus. We're called to be witnesses. We're called to be the Imago Dei, the image of God, image bearers. We're supposed to be ambassadors. We're supposed to present Jesus. We're living epistles known and read of all men. And sometimes the way we present Jesus isn't really an adequate picture of Jesus. My wife and I, we play this game with the kids. It's seen it. Have you guys ever played it? Seen it like S-C-E-N-E from like a movie scene? Seen it? But anyway, you put a disc in and you play it on the TV and it has like video clips and different video games. Some of them are like Jeopardy, some of them are like Wheel of Fortune, and some of them are just outlandish, crazy questions. But one of them is called Distorted Image, and it's like these wavy lines of this picture, and whoever can yell out what the image is supposed to be first gets the point. And sometimes our presentation of Jesus isn't the finished product. It's that distorted wavy line and people have to have the gift of interpretation to see what image we're actually representing. Because we betray him for 30 pieces of silver like Judas. We betray him with a kiss while we're holding on and embracing the world and we're friends with the world. And <laughs> Anyway, I won't go into all that. But we betray him with a kiss sometimes like Judas. Or we're like the multitudes that are just in it because everybody else is in it. Or we're like the people gathering together in Caiaphas' house that they can't really agree on any one thing. They've heard rumors, but they don't really know the word, so they're just spitting out things, hoping that they land somewhere. Or we're like Caiaphas, who says, well, somebody had to die, so might as well be him. And, or we're like Peter, and hacking people's ear off and swinging the Bible around like we're a marauder or a barbarian. And we oftentimes betray Jesus in our witness. And so instead of bearing the image of Christ, we're bearing some distorted-looking Picasso piece of mess, and it doesn't look anything like Jesus. And that brings us to where we're at today, and there's, there's a continuing flow in this. Because Jesus, here's the punchline, is the truth. And if we're supposed to bear witness to Jesus, we're bearing witness to the truth. And so today, we're going to talk about truth. What is truth? John 18, verse 28. Then led they, this is immediately following Peter's denials. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? And they answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. 
Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, saying, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So, God help me. So verse 28, verse 28 kind of cracks me up. It cracks me up in a not so funny way. And here's the reason why. Because you have this group of people, Jews, chief priests, uh, Sadducees, Pharisees, all these people. And they're taking Jesus. They had a mock trial, an illegal trial according to the law. And they pronounce Jesus guilty and want him dead, even though they really didn't find any corroborating witnesses, so much so that Caiaphas said, what further need do we have of witness? That then they bring him to a Roman proctor and say, hey, why don't you kill him for us? But in the midst of all this, Look what it says. They went not into the judgment hall lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. It cracks me up because this is what we are so guilty of. And I know I I preach harsh a lot of times, so I apologize in advance. I just, this is the way God talks to me. So this is the way I talk to you. It's not that I think that you guys are awful people, whether you're watching online, I don't know, or you're in here. I don't think you're awful people. But I think that in a day where everybody sugarcoats the truth all the time, somebody has to say it harsh. <laughs> if not for you, so that when somebody else says something sugarcoat, and you can say, ant. Eh. <laughs> My son asked me the other day, why do you say ant? Eh? And I say, I say ant eh, so that I don't smack you. <laughs> <laughs> so eh, anyway that's what you did don't smack people say eh. anyway <laughs> anyway but here's a good example understand I am not judging you but this is the same mentality where we get more concerned about a cross being in the church than we do about it being in our heart I know many of you are concerned about where the cross went. I'm not beating up on you. I'm just saying that this is the mentality that we get in, where we care more about what the church looks like and more about what outfit we're wearing to church than about what's going on in our hearts. That's why people have their nice Sunday best on and they're smacking each other and cussing each other and arguing about what God knows what, but the moment they pull into the church parking lot, they slap the smile on and get out. It's like, son, you better get your act together because if you embarrass me, I'm going to kill you when we get home. (laughs) 
Y'all been in church a long time. Y'all know this is reality. You know it's reality. It's like who can fake it till we make it the best. And that's why we come in and it's like, do we actually, are we real people? Are we real people? Because we get so concerned about what's on the outside and not what's going on on the inside. And they're so concerned about being ceremonially clean that they don't realize, they won't even go into the building because it's a Gentile building. It's a judgment hall. They don't want to get contaminated. If they get blood on them and they get touched something unclean, they'll have to wash and wait seven days so they won't be able to eat the Passover. And then they'll have to partake of the stranger's Passover. And that's an insult to the religious elect. God forbid a pastor or somebody that's supposed to be a minister says, hey, I've got issues and I struggle. Because we want everything to be picture perfect, right? <laughs> my wife and I, my wife, she's amazing. She's amazing. She keeps, she keeps, she, yes, hallelujah. If you can't say amen about that, then just go home. My wife is amazing. She's amazing. I'm going to see if I can get her to turn purple before the message is over. But she's, ama- she's amazing. And one of the things that she does better than anybody I've ever seen in my life is clean. I mean, it's ridiculous how well and how amazing the house looks every time I go in. And she like has like the rain sounds on with the pretty autumn picture of leaves falling and it raining. And then she's got like these diffusers putting this fall smell through the air. And then she's got like soft instrumental jazz music playing in the background. And it's like, she's like, why are you so tired? It's like, no, I come home and it's like I sit down and I'm like about to pass out because it's just amazing. And it just feels like home. You know, not to mention, you know, whatever she is cooking smells like the glory just came down. But, <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's, sometimes it's funny because it's like she'll go through and she'll just run through and, you know, clean the living room or something. And it's like, I don't want to sit. And I'll sit in the floor. And she'll be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't want to sit on that couch. <laughs> like, that looks like it's, it should be in Southern Home Magazine. Like, I don't want to sit on it <laughs> and mess it up. But that's what we get concerned about. We get so concerned about what things look like that there's no life in it. There's no life in it. That's why Jesus says, you're whited sepulchers. You're these pretty tombstones. And filled with dead men's bones. There's death inside. Or you're, you, you worry about cleaning the outside of the cup and there's poison and death in the inside. But man, that's a pretty cup. I don't know about you, but if somebody, I went to somebody's house and they offered me coffee. I love coffee. And so they offered me coffee and they hand me this beautiful ornate cup. And I look in the cup and it's like filled with like mold and death. Like I'm not going to say, yeah, pour me a big cup. I'm like, you know what? I forgot. I've already had two cups. I just said two cups. I meant two pots. I really can't push it. You know, <laughs> but we get so concerned about what's the outside look like. We get so concerned. What's the outside look like? What's our clothes look like? You know, it's not, you know, the, the issue with the New Testament, we talk about the New Testament a lot. And oftentimes we talk about how good the New Testament is. And praise God, I talk, I, the New Testament is good. The gospel is good news. But as I said last week, it isn't easy news. It's good news, but it ain't easy news. And here's the reason why. The Old Testament talks about what you're doing and how you're doing it. It's all external. It's all about your actions, your behaviors, your conduct. It's all out here. Jesus comes and says, ha, 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 thoughts count. 
The Old Testament says, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, don't look on somebody with lust, or you've already committed adultery in your heart. The Old Testament says, don't kill. Jesus says, don't even be angry with your brother, or you're in danger of hellfire. The New Testament ups the ante. Oh, it ups the reward, and it ups the promise, but it also ups the standard, and ups the criteria, because now it's thoughts and feelings count. And in church, we get so caught up in the external sins, the things people can see. You know, somebody walks in, a a man walks in and he's dressed as a woman and the whole church freaks out. And I'm not saying that that's, that's right or that somebody should do that. I'm not saying that that's not sinful. I don't know if it's as sinful as it is foolish, but it's, it's still wrong. <laughs> it's definitely sinful, but I'm, it's more foolish than it is sinful. But, <laughs> Lord Jesus. But we get so caught up in that that when somebody comes in and they have the spirit of perversion all over them, but they're not looking a certain way, this one is more okay than this one. And it's not. It's not. You know what's crazy? is I am actually, the book of James is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I love the book of James. But I love the book of James because I see the book of James differently than most people see it. And I'm not saying like as a bragging point, I'm just saying I read it differently. Because I read the book of James as being fixated on one word. I I can sum up the entire book of James with one word. And coincidentally, the word only appears two times in the entire book of James. And it's the heart. The book of James is completely consumed with the heart, but it only says it twice. It's because what James does is he does this diagnostic measure to get down to the root issues. Oh yeah, he talks about adultery once. He talks about murder twice. But he talks about pride, and he talks about greed, and he talks about partiality, these unseen unseen sins that pervade the church, and he wears them out throughout the entire epistle. In the book of Proverbs, it lists these six things, yea, seven, are abomination before God. And if you go to Proverbs 6 and you read them, not one of them is dealing with an external thing. A proud look, a lying tongue, a false witness. And people, uh, feet that are swift to spread mischief, and he that owes discord among the brethren. And then people say, well, there is the hands that are swift to shed innocent blood. And I'm like, yes, there is. But notice that he doesn't say that shedding of the blood is the issue. Oh, I'm not saying he condones that. It's not the shedding of the blood that's the issue. It's the hands that are swift to shed the blood. It's the motivating factor. It's the intent of the heart that's the issue. Jesus and God cares more about what's going on inside you than what you look like on the outside. But we are afraid to get ceremonially defiled while we're condemning an innocent man to death. That's what, that's what they're doing here. and They're afraid to be ceremonially seen as being unclean while they're bloodthirsty and condemning an innocent man to death. Because the John's account doesn't say it, but when they go in, 
when they go there. Luke's account says, hey, this guy says that we shouldn't pay our taxes, which is a lie, because Jesus actually says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and unto God that which is God's. And then he tells Peter, go fishing and pull out the gold coin to pay my taxes and your taxes. And it's like, I hate fishing, but if I could catch fish with gold coins in their mouth, I'd start. <laughs> but So he doesn't say, don't pay your taxes. And he says, and this man says that he's Christ the King. And what they're doing is they're taking their religious beliefs and Pilate's been in Judea long enough that he is familiar with what is said about the Messiah, about the Christ, the anointed one. Is The idea, the popular ideology is that the Messiah will come, sit on the throne of David, and overthrow the Roman oppression. That's the popular ideology in the first century. And so they're taking something they say they hope for they say they believe in, they say that they want, and selling this guy out and saying he's, he's evil because he's saying that he's all these things we're hoping for. And they're twisting scripture to suit themselves. Because they're more concerned about the outside than they are about the inside. They're more concerned about appearing to be religious than actually being religious. They're more concerned about appearing to be in good standing with God than actually being in good standing with God. And so they're willing to twist Scripture however they need to and sell their nation out, sell their own faith out, sell their own beliefs out just to get this man who's making them look less religious than they want to look out of the way. That's the reason. It, it tells us back in the very beginning of Mark, they're doing this out of envy. The whole reason they want Jesus out of the way is because he's drawing more followers than they are. And he is making them look less religious than they want to look. They've tried to kill him multiple times. They tried stoning him. They tried pushing him off the cliff. They've tried laying hands on him already up to this point. Because he is messing up their religious system. He's messing up their ceremony. And sometimes I wish that God would just step down in every single church across the country and just mess up everybody's ceremony. Everybody's religion, just mess it all up for just, just a moment. I would be perfectly content, and I, I know I'm a weirdo, and I, I, I am perfectly content with being called eccentric or fanatical or whatever, but I'd be perfectly content if I walked in church one day and I got up here to do the announcements and I fell flat on my face because the presence of God came in so strong that no one ever got the chance to say a word. And we just got to be in here for a couple hours in the presence of God. I would be perfectly content if there was no music, if there was no sermon, if there was no exhortation, if there was nothing, if it was just God for two or three hours and then we left. And then we came back and it was just God again. I'd be great with it. Call me a fanatic. That's why I'm here. It's because I want to see God. And I'm going to keep doing it until I see God. But some people aren't like that. And I'm not saying that, that, that you have to be like that, but some people aren't. Some people want the ceremony. Some people want to come in and they want their three songs to start. First one be fast and the second one be a step down and the third one be slow. And then the pastor get up, like I said, and be like, oh... Do you feel the presence of the Lord? And it's like, no, I feel tired because we just sang a slow song. You know, you can manipulate emotions. You can. And we in the church have confused man emotional manipulation for the presence of God. 
That's why I like to do it the opposite way. Let's start with the slow song, and then let's ramp it up as we get closer to the message. Let's just do it different. Next week, we may do a slow song, a fast song, and then another slow song. I don't know. <laughs> the point isn't to just experiment, because we're not lab rats. The point is, is that I don't, it's not how we do the songs. It's not how we lay out the service. It's are we in this to see God or not? Are we in this because we want to be spiritually clean or because we want to be ceremonially clean? Is it because we want a cross in the church or because we want the cross in our heart? Anyway, um, so they're bloodthirsty. And it says, I mean, even at the end, you have a man who's actually guilty, Barabbas, and they're like, no, release him. Let's kill this innocent man. (laughs) And Pilate says, well, judge him according to your law. And they say, look, we can't put somebody to death. So they're not wanting a trial. They're just wanting him killed. They just want him killed. I love the fact when he says, what accusation do you have? And they say, well, if he wasn't a criminal or a malefactor, we wouldn't have brought him before you. And it's like, you didn't answer the question. (laughs) You didn't answer the question. Because you know if you do answer the question, we're going to pronounce him innocent. I find no fault in this man. But they're already given into this mob mentality. They're out for blood. And sometimes Christians are just like this. They don't care nothing about the person of Jesus. We become vampire Christians. You know what a vampire Christian is? It's somebody that don't care nothing about the person of Jesus. They just want the blood. They just want the blood over their sins. They just want the blood on the doorpost so the destroyer has to pass by, but they don't care nothing about the person of Jesus. They don't care nothing about his teachings. They don't care nothing about the relationship. They just want the blood. Look, I want the blood, but I want the blood because the life of the flesh, the life of the person is in the blood because I want the whole package. I want all of God, not just what he can do for me. Anyway, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. They're doing this because it says this, and I love John, the way he writes. In fact, I just love the way the Holy Spirit writes because he's doing this through their personalities. But that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. I have said this multiple times. Do you know that prophecy is awesome because it's God's way of saying, I told you so? <laughs> it is. And prophecy is such, is such like a thug move by God. And I'm, when I say thug, I just mean like boss move. Like it's just God being like, I, I am God and you're not. Because he literally... You guys watch football? You watch football? I love football. I remember way back when, I don't remember the linebacker's name, but Bo Jackson's one of my favorite football players of all time, Bo Jackson Raiders. I mean, that dude was an animal. But there was this linebacker said, I am going to nail Bo Jackson. I'm going to wear him out. And Bo Jackson decided I'm going to be, I'm going to be thug. What was his name? I, I, yeah, that guy, Steve something. <laughs> I couldn't hear the last name. But anyway, Bo Jackson said, you know what? I'm going to run it right up the middle, right at you. And it wasn't like it was disguised. I'm going to run it right at you. Stop me if you can. And guess what happened? Bo Jackson scored a touchdown. 
I mean, it's like Earl Campbell. Hey, I'm running right here. Stop me if you can. <laughs> and he'd be like, they pull his jersey and his shoulder pads off, and he's still running. Uh, he's my favorite player to watch. Earl Campbell is, uh, I mean, his legs were like this big around. The dude was, he was a tank. But anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is because they said, I'm going to go right here. Stop me. And they couldn't. And prophecy of God, is God's way of telling the world, the flesh, and the devil, I'm going to do this right here. Stop me if you can. And you can't. And what I love even more is I think, Lord, forgive me, this isn't blasphemy. I think that God is a little bit of a, um, a smart aleck. <laughs> I think that he is. I think that he has that dry sense of humor and he's a little bit of a smart aleck because, you know, he doesn't just do what he's gonna said he was going to do. He uses the evil ones to do it. <laughs> I mean, he said, Jesus, throughout the Old Testament, it, it signifies what kind of death Jesus is going to die. And then Jesus comes and is in the person. Like, hey, if you forgot the prophecies, let me bring it back to your remembrance. Let me, let me remind you, Satan, of what I'm about to do. Stop me if you can. But then guess what? You can't stop me. I'm going to use you to make it happen. That's how sovereign our God is. He said I'm going, that I'm going to be lifted up. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then he uses their bloodthirst, their hatred, their mob mentality to do the very thing that he said was going to happen. That's an awesome God. That's why like, I try, I know circumstances sometimes are really difficult to deal with. But I try not to get worked up because I'm like, my God can use this awful circumstance and this bratty individual because there are some people that are just brats this bratty individual to do good for me they're doing all they can to punish me or to hate on me or to try to make my life miserable and god's up there laughing the lord will have them derision that's psalm 2 and he's going to use their wicked behavior and their nonsense and he's going to make it work out for my good anyway like that's a good god that's a good god I ain't even got to what I want to preach yet. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. <laughs> so, Pilate comes in, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, why do you ask? I'm paraphrasing. He said, why do you ask? You ask because that's what they said, or you ask because you really want to know? Now, here's the thing, and I'm going to try to make this real quick because I've said it on Wednesday nights, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back a few Wednesday nights and you'll, you'll catch it. But Jesus is being asked if he's the king of the Jews, right? Now, Jewish is an abbreviated form of Judah-ish. They just, over time, for ease of pronunciation, they dropped the duh and it became Jewish instead of Judaish or Judah-ish. And that means pertaining to the kingdom of Judah. Judah was one of the 12 tribes. But when the kingdom was rent from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, because of Solomon's sins, they took 10 tribes to make the northern kingdom, which became Israel, and two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to be the southern kingdom, which became the kingdom of Judah. And that is the promise that God made to David and to his lineage saying it, they will never fail a son of David to sit upon David's throne as the kingdom of Judah. That's the remnant and the promise. So when somebody is called Jewish, they are actually being someone that is pertaining to the kingdom of Judah, which 
if you take that to its spiritual reality, is someone that is under the domain of the king of the kingdom of Judah, because kingdom is just the domain of the king. So it's someone that's under the domain of Christ who sits on the throne of David. So in order to be Jewish, to be actually Jewish, you have to be under the domain of the king of Judah, which is Jesus Christ. So ergo, to be Jewish, you have to be a Christian. There are ethnic people that are naturally ethnically Jewish, but those are the ones that are talked about throughout Scripture that say that they're Jews but are not. Because what is a Jew has changed through what Christ accomplished. And Paul does promise that there will be a revival of ethnic Israel and those that are ethnically Jewish in the last days. And he talks about this and them being regrafted and all that wonderful. I'm not hating on Jews. I'm not spewing anti-Semitism, especially with what's going on over there right now. I'm just saying that according to Scripture, to be spiritually Jewish is a Christian, someone that is under the domain of Christ. And if you want to have a further conversation, I can break that down in a lot bigger of a way. But just for the sake of this conversation the reason that he's continually called the king of the jews is because he is the king of the jews because he is the king that is of the lineage of david that sits on the throne of david that is re-establishing the kingdom of david the kingdom of judah make sense all right so i just ran through that real quick because that whole conversation and the reason that it's continually pushed is because this is what's happening. The transition is happening right now. And Jesus is saying, do you ask this of yourself or because they said it about me? And Pilate says, am I a Jew? Like, does this pertain to me? And the answer is, yeah, it absolutely pertains to you. And he says, your own nation, your own people betrayed you. And so Jesus then begins to show the distinction between spiritual Israel and being spiritually Jewish and natural Israel. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he goes on, he says, if it were, my servants wouldn't have let me be betrayed. And then Pilate says this, he says, so you are a king. So you are a king. He says, you say that I am for this cause I came in to the, or was I, I was born and for this cause I came into the world to bear witness of the truth and they that are of the truth hear my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? Now, First off, Pilate's asking the wrong question. He's asking the wrong question. But before we can tell him what the right question is, we kind of have to meet him where he's at. See, that's the problem in evangelism. When people try to share the gospel, we don't find out where people are at. We just try to force information down their throat. And that doesn't work. We try, they're over here in this hemisphere and we're over here in this hemisphere and we're trying to force feed them this information and they're never going to accept it because we're not answering the questions that they're asking. If we actually want to be effective witnesses and truly answer the questions uh, and give them the information that they need, we have to actually begin to answer the questions that they're asking. So before I can tell Pilate he's asking the wrong question, I need to answer the question that he is asking, which is what is truth? What is truth? And I think that this is one of the best passages in the entire Bible because of this question. What is truth? And I'm going to tell you what truth is not. This is, this is called the argument by negative. It's saying what something is not before you say what it is. Truth is not relative to the individual. In our society, we need to hear that. Truth is not relative to the individual. Truth is 
is not relative to your opinion. That's why I hate critical race theory. I hate it. I think it's one of the darkest plagues that have ever hit the church. And they say, no, it's just a tool. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's a stem from critical theory, which was set up by Karl Marx, the same guy that said religion is the opiate of the masses. Critical theory, and by extension, critical race theory, wants you to destroy objective reality. It wants everything to be down to the experience of the individual, down to their perspective. And out of that same mentality, that same philosophy, is why we are dealing with the sexual revolution right now. Why men are saying that they're women, and women are saying that they're wolves, and someone else said that they're a mermaid king. And I'm like, you ain't Ariel? Like, anyway. So, <laughs> but, and that's why people are saying, I am this, I identify as that. It's like, no, there's no reality to that. There's no truth to that. It's your perception, your opinion. But your opinion isn't truth. Your perspective isn't truth. Truth is not subjective. Here, here's, here's a word study for you. There's objective reality and there's subjective reality. Objective reality is what's true, what's true, what's true, no matter what you or I think about it. Whether I like it or dislike it, the reality is, the reality is. Right now, whether I like it or not, Joe Biden is president. Whether I like it or not, he's there. Whether I agree with how he got there or not, he's there. That's, that's the reality. I can't say, well, so-and-so is. No, the reality is, he's sitting there. Subjective reality is, I think these walls are hot pink. It's like, no, they're not. <laughs> I don't care if I'm colorblind or not because I see something doesn't make that what it is. The reality is these guys that are running around wearing dresses are men. Whether they say that they are or they're not doesn't change the objective reality. The objective reality is a standard that exists above you or I and it's just what is real regardless of how we feel about it. Subjective reality is we make everything true or false based on what we feel about it. Our opinions become fact. And that's why critical race theory and critical theory are so dangerous is because they say that it is more about the experience of the individual than it is about the facts of the situation. So when someone walks in a room and says, I feel persecuted when no one said anything to them and they say, I feel like I'm a victim of a hate crime and no one has said anything, then critical race theory and critical theory would say, you're right, you are a victim because you felt that way. And it's like, no. Like, suck it up, buttercup. Reality is what reality is, regardless of how it makes you feel. It is what it is, regardless of how it makes you feel. And so truth is not relative to the individual. It is a standard that exists, regardless of how we feel about it. We don't determine what's true based on our opinion or our feelings. And here's one. It's not about our interpretation either. This Bible is true. My interpretation may not always be. Because my interpretation is subject to the same shortcomings that I am. 
as are your interpretations. And that's why we, we become guilty when somebody says something or preaches something or teaches something and we take that as gospel and it's like, that's their interpretation. That just because they said it doesn't mean that it's true. That's why John says, test the spirits to see whether or not they're of God. So truth is not relative to the individual. It's not our perspective or our opinion. It's not subjective to our likes and wants and desires and feelings. But truth is also not facts. And everybody's like, what? (laughs) Facts and truth are not the same thing. And here's the reason why. Because fact, what color are these walls, Faith? Is this cream, off-white, light? It's like gray. Okay, ooh, wow. So these walls are apparently gray. (laughs) I can't see that, but okay, they're gray. The chairs are red, right? Burgundy, red, maroon. There we go, that's a good word. The chairs are maroon. That's a fact, right? Does everybody agree that's a fact? If I sell all of them and I bring in blue chairs, is it still a fact that the chairs are red or maroon? The walls are gray. If I paint them hot pink, is it still a fact that the walls are gray? No, see, facts are subject to change. Truth is not. Facts are temporal. They're tied to a circumstance or a situation. Truth is not. Truth is unchangeable. It's immutable, meaning that it cannot be changed. It never has been changed. It never will be changed. Truth doesn't have a beginning and an ending. It's eternal because if it had a beginning, then it would have had a moment where it endured change so that it could suddenly exist. So truth is eternal and unchangeable. I'm setting the foundation for where I'm going with this because if truth is immutable and unchangeable and it's a standard that exists above us, not subject to our standards and our opinions and our likes and wants and dislikes, it's starting to lay a foundation and sound an awful lot like God. And so Pilate's question is, what is truth, is wrong because he really should be asking, who is truth? Who is truth? And the one he's talking to is truth. So what did Jesus come for? Jesus came to accomplish our atonement, of course, but what did he come to bear witness of? He came to, it says he came to bear witness of the truth, but what did he actually bear witness of? Follow his ministry. He came to bear witness of God, of himself. So he's saying, I came to bear witness of the truth. I came to bear witness of myself, that I am the second person of the Trinity, that I am God, that I am the creator of all things, that I have been there for all eternity, that I will remain for all eternity, that there will come a day where Pilate will stand before me. (laughs) Leonard Ravenhill used to say, when Pilate stands before Jesus, I bet he ain't going to be as comfortable as Jesus felt standing before Pontius Pilate. Anyway, cracks me up. But the point is, is that Jesus is answering And showing that he is the truth. In John chapter 8. Actually if you follow John. The apostle John. He wrote five books of the New Testament. He wrote the gospel of John which we're reading. He wrote the three epistles. And then he wrote the book of Revelation. And in all five of those books. He uses the word truth a lot. And you know he never once uses the word truth. To refer to something that is temporal. It's always used to refer towards something eternal. Something that goes beyond the temporal. Most often it's used to refer to Jesus, to Jesus' word, or to God himself, or to God's word. Or to the spirit who is of truth, who guides us into all truth and glorifies Jesus Christ and reveals what is made known to him by the Father. In John chapter 8, he says this. You can go John 8.32. Can you throw that up? Actually, yeah, go to 32. 
see where that brings us. Hey. Yeah. We can back up a verse. Go to 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples, right? You continue in my word, you're my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Remember that phrase, shall make you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. How you say we shall be free? First of all, that's a lie. I can't name a time period where the Jews really haven't been in bondage to somebody. I mean, they were in bondage to the Romans at the time of this, writing this. They were in bondage to the Greeks before that. They were in bondage to the Persians and the Medes before that. They were in bondage to Babylonia, uh, Babylonian captivity before that. And then you had the constant back and forth of the wars with the Philistines and who was serving who. And then even before that, you had them dealing throughout the book of Judges with the Midianites and the Ishmaelites and the Edomites. And it's just constant. They're always in bondage to somebody. So they're lying right here, but anyway, continue. Jesus answered them and said, I'm not talking about natural bondage. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Keep going. And the servant abideth not in the house forever. That verse right there. But the son abideth forever. One more verse. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Wait, didn't it just say a few verses back in 832, didn't it say you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free? Now it's saying if the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. See, Jesus is using context clues and he's hinting at something here. He's hinting at the fact that he is the truth. If you continue in my word, what I'm telling you, (laughs) you continue in my teaching, you imitate me and you follow the information that I give to you, then you're going to be my disciples. You're going to take my discipline and my lifestyle, my way of ministry upon yourself. Then you will know the truth. You'll know the truth by what I say to you and what I do and you following me. And the truth will make you free. And then a few verses down, he says, and if the son makes you free, you're really free. You're free indeed. This is a perpetual freedom. This is a freedom that doesn't just come and go whimsically. And I love the fact that he's not talking about a temporal situation. See, we, we, like, uh, we live in the, the natural and in our circumstance, so it's hard to not get caught up in the waves. You know, Peter's walking on the water. You've got all the waves. Everybody faults Peter for turning away from Jesus. And now, look, if I'm walking on a raging sea and there's lightning striking and little hurricanes and waves going, like, don't lie to me and tell me you're not going to look at that. <laughs> you, you're going to because it's in your fallen nature to look at the circumstance you're dealing with. And take your eyes off of the truth. Jesus is saying, look at me. Know me and you'll be made free. I like the phrase make you free rather than set you free. Set you free is fine. But the problem with being set free is you can be put back into bondage. Listen, if I go to prison, please God, I don't really want to go to prison. I worked there and I didn't like it. I don't want to be there all the time. But if... I were to go to prison, a couple things could happen. I get convicted of a felony, I go to prison. I serve my term, and I get let out on good behavior. I'm set free, aren't I? But guess what? I still have a record. And now the jobs that I can get are limited. The places that I can go are limited. My ability to own certain items that go bang, bang are limited. (laughs) Or I can have somebody dig a tunnel and bust me out. 
And I'm free. They set me free. But guess what? I'm now wanted. (laughs) And I'm never truly free. But when you're made free, this isn't just a pronunciation of pardon because you don't get those years of your life back. This is a transformation of being that you are now made somebody that never had to suffer that. That's, that's powerful. See, Jesus came to deliver us from the penalty of sin. And through his, the power of His Spirit, He can deliver us from the power of sin. <laughs> I said power twice and it threw me off. Jesus delivered us from the penalty of sin through the work He did on the cross. And by the power of His Spirit, He delivers from the power of sin. And there will come a day that I so desperately long for in heaven when we sit in the house of the Father and we're delivered from the presence of sin. Penalty, power, and presence. That's the work of Jesus when it's brought to its culmination. We're taken from the penalty of sin. We're taken from the power of sin. And one day we'll be taken from the presence of sin altogether. And I cannot wait until I can be around people and not have to deal with drama and not listen to the things that people are suffering because of other people's drama and not deal with sickness and not deal with whining and not deal with complaining and murmuring and not dealing with backbiting and slander and not having to question somebody's motives, whether or not they're coming at me because they have ulterior motives and they're trying to get something out of me. And if somebody asks for a general gift and a blessing you know hey I'm standing on the side of the road holding a cardboard sign I need you to bless my family that I know that they're actually telling me the truth because there's no lying you know there's a guy that stood on the side of the corner and held up a sign and made over a hundred thousand dollars in a year and people do that all the time even though they don't need it some of them make more money in the year than you do and they don't have to pay taxes on it but I long for the day where sin is gone. Man, I can't wait. I can't wait until sin is gone. And in John 8, maybe verse 34, what is verse 34? Let's see. No, verse 35. The servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. I love this verse. Because as Jesus is giving context clues that he's the truth, he's giving context clues about something else about the truth. You know, truth is a person. We've established that. But truth also has a purpose. It's doing something. It's accomplishing something. How many of you guys, when I started talking about Jesus being the truth, started quoting John fourteen six to yourself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. How many of you? Raise your hand. You guys know your Bible. How many of you thought about that verse? You're absolutely right. And that's why I wanted to end with it, because I wanted you to sit there and say, why ain't he saying John 14, 6 the whole time? But John 14, verse 1, it says this, Jesus, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I want to tell you something. I don't want to bust your guys' theology up, but the in my father's house are many mansions is really a bad translation. It's pretty, but it's a bad translation. It's rooms. It's apartments. I mean, how you got mansions in a house? <laughs> you got one big house with a bunch of little doll houses around? Like, that? Do, come on. It's, it's one, it's fitting the Jewish ideology or the tradition where they would have a house, and when their son got older and got married, They would build an addition onto the house and they would live there. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's, I'm going to build the room for you. Like we're, we're establishing this covenant. I'm going to build a dwelling place for you. And I love that because I don't have to like you to be your neighbor. You know, you know what I mean? I, I don't have to like you to be your neighbor. Like you can have your gold mansion and I'll have my gold mansion. I don't have to like you. We don't even have to have a contact. But you live in the same house with somebody. You're going to find out what you really think of them before too long. That's why marriage is so hard in the first couple of years because you realize some things you didn't realize before. It's like, no, 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 no. We don't share toothbrushes in my house. <laughs> like, no, we, you close the door when you go to the bathroom. You know, it's like, <laughs> anyway, yeah, you put the seat down. <laughs> Come on, you guys know. You know, the biggest surprise about marriage, I never realized how much hair there would be. <laughs> and then I had a daughter. And then I had a daughter. <laughs> Come on, there's a lot of things she could tell you. If all I had to deal with was hair and she has to deal with all that she has to deal with, y'all know me well enough to know she's got it made. Or I've got it made in the shade. She don't. Anyway, uh, but yeah, you know, like there's things about living with somebody that surprise you. You don't know. See, I've always said this. God invites us into his family, and he makes us accepted in the beloved. But he doesn't make us that distant third cousin that smells bad that nobody wants to be around. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, There's people in my family I don't want anything to do with. And it's like, if I know they're going to be there, I make an excuse to not be. I'm that guy. I don't care. I'll own it. I'll own it. We have a family reunion. Who's coming? <laughs> like, give me the guest list before before you put me down. You know, put my name in pencil and get your eraser ready because you just never know. Uh, I own it. I, I own that because there's just some people that are just extra grace required people and I can't handle them. But God is not that way towards us. He enjoys our company. And so he doesn't just build us a house at the end of the street where he doesn't have to be with us. He builds a room on in his own house. That's why I love that song we listen to. He says, there's a front porch and the father's waiting and the family's gathered around the table because the invitation is for us to be together, to be together. I love it. I can't wait for heaven. I can't wait for heaven. And he says, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. And where I go you know and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, how do we know not whether thou goest? How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by me. I've said a lot about what truth is not. Now I'm going to say something about what truth is. Truth is exclusive. If one thing is true, its opposite cannot be true. Something cannot be the same and different at the same time in the same relationship that violates the law of non-contradiction and so like if i heat a pot up on the stove and I, I touch it i say it cannot be hot and cold at the same time and in the same relationship it can be hot and then 20 minutes later it can be cold but that's not at the same time in the same relationship because that violates the law of non-contradiction and the reason I'm saying this is because when we say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father, people say, well, that's bigotry. How can Christians be so intolerant and so exclusive? Truth, by very defin definition of being true, is exclusive. If I say that Jesus Christ is the only way, or He is the way to God, and someone else says that Muhammad is the way to God, what they're saying 
is saying what I'm saying is wrong. They're being just as exclusive as I am. Someone says there is no God. You're being just as exclusive as I am. But we get called bigots and we get called intolerant because we know what we believe. And we know whom we have trusted. So don't let somebody call you bigoted. Don't let somebody say you're intolerant because you hold to the truth. Just say truth is always exclusive. It's always exclusive. And so I want to point out one more thing and then I want to close in prayer. The thing I want to point out is Jesus says, where I go you know and the way you know. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going so how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he says those three things, he's answering a question. Jesus is saying, where I'm going, that's life. I come that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly. That's the destination. And the way, I am the way, that's the atoning sacrifice. But I need to tell you something. And don't freak out on me. You are not saved by the death of Jesus Christ. And everybody's like, did you just go heretical on me? Like, don't get shaky-kneed yet. I'm glad you're sitting down. You are not saved by the death of Jesus Christ. You are reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ. You are saved by His life. See, if Jesus Christ would have just died for your sins and wouldn't have got up, there would have been no destination for you to be invited into. So you would have had your sins paid for, but you would have just messed it up again. No, he had to get up because he had to have that righteousness to impute into you and that life to invite you into. So when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what he's saying is, I am the destination that you're going to. I am the road to get there, but guess what? Susan, I'm the car that's taking you there too. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And you're saved by his life. That's why Paul says, I am dead, or I do I through the law am dead to the law, for I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, that the life I now live in the flesh, I live through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's why he says this later in another place in Romans, he says, If we, being enemies, were reconciled unto God by his death, being Christ, much more than being reconciled, we shall also be saved by his life. I'm not giving you something that's not scriptural. You're reconciled by his death and you're saved by his life. And that's why he can die for the sins of all people in the whole world and they still don't get to participate in the covenant until they believe because they have not had his life come into them. That's the truth. That's the answer to Pilate's question. What is truth? Who is truth? Truth is Jesus. Truth is a person. Truth has a purpose. Truth is exclusive. Amen? Man, I can't wait for heaven. Jesus, Lord, please. I'm not asking for you to hasten the day, but I'm asking for you to hasten and increase our urgency for the harvest. Lord, you know when all these things are going to come about. And so, God, I'm just telling you that I long for a place that I've never been, that I can't wait to experience life with you for all eternity. I can't wait to see the presence of sin removed. I cannot wait to enter into the joy of the Lord. And Lord, I pray that as many people as possible be brought in. And Lord, I pray that you use this church in an effectual and powerful way to increase that harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.